Hello, I'm Alec and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday. The day this comes out, I will officially be done with my first year of law school. It is super exciting. I'm recording this the day before my last final, so I'm not feeling it at the moment. But when you're hearing the soft, soothing sounds of Alex's wonderful, sentimental voice, you'll know he's relaxed. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're doing well. In terms of scandals that I have seen in the news recently, I read an article today about an ex-monk who is involved in a sex scandal and it turns out that he may be a victim of a sexual misconduct with a woman while he was ordained in Nakhon Si Thamarat province. There was a leak of an audio recording that involved a secret sexual relationship between him and another woman. Uh, He admitted to the sexual misconduct and ended up giving some money over the controversial relationship, but it is turning out that there is the potential that he may be a victim and not just the woman, or maybe the woman wasn't the victim. We'll see. That is really the only thing I've seen in the news recently, and that's because I've been studying for my final, which is on Thursday. So it's been a busy week. And with that, I think we're just gonna get started. Uh, The sources I use for this episode, an article by Stacey Conrad from Mental Floss in 2011, an article by Haley Sweetland Edwards in Time, published in 2018, an Encyclopedia Britannica page from 2021, an article by Terry Gross from NPR in 2021, an article by Robert Langley from ThoughtCo, published in 2019, an article by Elizabeth Nix, published in 2016 for History.com, an article or more of like a kind of like a research paper in an article format by Cecilia Rasmussen published in 2004 and then lastly a Wikipedia page about one of the things we're going to talk about. Those are the sources I used and I kind of talked a little bit about the Supreme Court leak in the last episode and that got me thinking that this is a scandal in itself. So then I got to thinking, hmm, I wonder what other Supreme Court scandals there are that I have heard about, haven't heard about, and it's definitely timely. I'm also interested in it because I'm in law school. So without further ado, this is U.S. Supreme Court Scandals. This first scandal, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the United States, and it involves a man named Justice John Rutledge. John Rutledge, he was appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington back in 1789, and he was one of the Supreme Court's first justices. He is also, so far, the only justice to be kicked off the court. Some brief background about John, he was born in 1739, and he played a lot of roles in founding the United States. He studied law in England, and then he came back to the United States to South Carolina, where he was chosen as a delegate to the Stamp Act Congress, 
And then later to the Continental Congress, he played a large role in politics in South Carolina and eventually was elected to be the governor of Carolina of South Carolina in 1779. Also, just fun fact, because I know you were curious, his brother, Edward Rutledge, he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So this family was heavily involved in politics, crucial, I don't know if crucial is the right word, but definitely important in the founding of the country. Even though they were important in the founding of the country, and keep in mind this is back in the 1700s, it's not surprising that someone from South Carolina in the 1700s would be a supporter of slavery. And he was. He wanted to divide society into classes, quote, as a basis for representation and also postulated high property qualifications for holding office, end quote. So basically, this guy supports slavery. He also wants to, dis- to divide society into classes based on race and property, basically justifying and ensuring that only powerful white landowning men could ever be in power. So that is a little bit about him. George Washington nominated him along with the four other justices, the first justices to be on the Supreme Court, and the Senate approved all of them. However, our man John Rutledge, he he wasn't into it. He got kind of bored, and even before he could hear a case, he resigned less than a year later to become the Chief Justice of the South Carolina Court of Common Pleas and Sessions. So this guy, he gets all the way to the Supreme Court. He's a member of the first, like he's on the first Supreme Court, one of the first members. And he's like, you know what? Uh, I'm okay. You know, I'm good. I'm just going to go back to South Carolina. So he does that for a couple years. And then eventually the Chief Justice John Ray of the Supreme Court resigned in 1795. Then our friend John the Man Rutledge was like, hey, You know, I really enjoyed my time on the Supreme Court. The one year I was there where I didn't hear a case, I would love to go back. So then George Washington selected Rutledge and gave him a recess appointment so he could serve as Chief Justice, but he still had to wait for the Senate confirmation to officially confirm him. So he was back on the Supreme Court, but really only for a temporary time until the Supreme Court approved, or not the Supreme Court, until the Senate approved him. At this point, John is back. He's on the court. He is taking the oath to serve on the court. And then he does something which you probably shouldn't do as a Supreme Court justice. He gave a highly controversial speech against the Jay Treaty with Great Britain. And you're probably thinking, who cares? It's just a speech. In the speech, he said that, quote, that he'd rather have the president die than sign the instrument, end quote. And he also said that he, quote, preferred war to an adoption of it, end quote. Believe it or not, saying that you would prefer war and a dead president over the signing of a document doesn't make you too popular with people in Washington, and that speech lost him a lot of support. I'm also, just like in my mind, I'm like, how dumb are you? Because you haven't been confirmed by the Senate, so even though you're on the court and you took the oath, you still weren't officially confirmed I just can't understand why he would do that. Like, at least wait until you're confirmed and you're up there because then you're there for life unless you get impeached. But he was like, no, I got to speak out about this now. 
By the time his confirmation actually rolled around, a lot of his support was gone. There were also rumors swirling around that he was abusing alcohol, that there was mental illness present. That, combined with what he had said about the Jay Treaty and George Washington, his appointment was rejected. It was the first time that the Senate voted down a Supreme Court nomination, which back then wouldn't have been hard because he was one of the first, but it as of today, he is the only person where a Supreme Court recess appointment was on the court and then subsequently rejected by the Senate. He also served the shortest time as Chief Justice with it being only 138 days. Unfortunately, the end of his life was downhill. It went bad pretty quickly. It seemed like he was dealing with some mental health issues. He attempted to commit suicide by jumping off of a bridge, but he was saved by two slaves who saw him drowning. I didn't see any information in terms of like if they were his slaves or whose slaves they were, but ugh, it's just, I mean, it's nice that they saved him, but it's like you have this pro-slavery person and its slaves end up saving your life. Ugh, I, I don't know. Not irony, but because irony, I think, would be the other thing. But who knows? It's just the juxtaposition. I think that's the word. So that happened. And then he lived um, until 1800, just a couple more years after he was thrown out of the court. That is our first one, Mr. John Rutledge. This next person is kind of short and also kind of has to do with mental illness in the court. It has to do with Justice John Blair. He was there around the same time, Justice John Blair, and he himself started to question his own sanity. He said that he was suffering from headaches and that there was, quote, a rattling, distracting noise in my head, end quote. He also said at times that his whole face would just go numb and that he would space off into nothing. Luckily, though, he realized how important the role of a Supreme Court justice is and was like, hmm, I probably shouldn't do this being in the condition that I'm in. And then he resigned because he determined that he would not be fit to serve. So there isn't much of a scandal to talk about with him because he just had mental illness and then resigned, but it was around the same time and was included in some of the articles that I was reading for this, so I just thought I would throw it in there. This next one involves something a little bit more exciting, an assassination attempt. It involves a justice named Stephen Johnson Field, but to understand what happened to Stephen Johnson Field, we need to understand a man named David Terry. David Terry, he was quite the character. He was a lawyer and he passed the bar, but this is how he passed the bar. He answered the question, quote, do you know the price of a dish of oysters? End quote. He did, and then he went and bought the bar examiners oysters and whiskey. So it definitely seems like a little bit less stringent of a requirement to become a lawyer back then than it is now. <laughs> Not only was he quite the character, but he was a tough guy. He fought in the Mexican-American War, and he was big. He was six foot three. He was built, muscular, and intimidating. 
He eventually found his way to the newly formed California back in the uh, mid-1800s, and he quickly became known for his hot temper. One story about him is when a scandal sheet, which I didn't know this before, but a scandal sheet, it was basically like a small newspaper that printed scandals back in the 1800s. Do I want all of them that still exist? Absolutely, I do. So there was a scandal sheet that was published about him and where he was offended. So what did he do? He went, found the editor who wrote it, and beat the editor up. He was fined $300. That is just one story about his hot temper. Even though he had this hot temper, he was still a lawyer, and with his hot temper and his pro-slavery beliefs, that didn't stop him from being elected to be a state Supreme Court justice in 1855. He got a lot of support from other pro- pro-slavery supporters, but even though he was elected, there were a lot of people who opposed him and opposed his pro-slavery beliefs. There were anti-slavery advocates who were tired of David Terry and his supporters, so the anti-slavery advocates, they were going to target David and his supporters. It didn't go well because David and his, his supporters found out, and then David went and stabbed one of the committee leaders through the neck. David was found guilty of assault and resisting arrest, but he was released shortly because the guy he stabbed in the neck lived. So everyone was like, oh, he lived. (sighs) David, you goon, don't worry about it. Let's just keep it going. You're a Supreme Court justice for the state of California. It's cool. He continued his time on the state Supreme Court, and in 1857, he became the chief justice of the California Supreme Court. He was met with a lot of criticism, especially from U.S. Senator David C. Broderick. The criticism became too much to only be limited to words, so a duel was set between the two men. When the duel took place, Broderick's gun went off early and Broderick's bullet shot to the ground, so David Terry pulled out his gun and shot Broderick in the chest. Broderick died three days later. David was charged with murder, but he got a change of venue where a friendly judge dismissed the case. Hey, you murdered someone in front of people at a duel? (sighs) Dude, don't worry about it. It's fine. Great. David, he eventually got bored of the state Supreme Court for California and stepped down to do something a little more noble, to go fight for the Confederate Army. He went and did that, and then he was like, you know what, this war's over. I'm going to go back to California to practice law. That is the background of David. David is the character we need to understand what happened to Stephen Johnson Field. So, that is David's background. Believe it or not, David was someone who made enemies throughout his entire life. And in 1884, David made enemies with William Sharon, who was a millionaire and former senator from Nevada. David represented a woman named Sarah Hill, quote, in a nationally publicized trial where she claimed she was secretly Sharon's wife. She sued to validate the marriage in order to obtain a divorce and gain half of his $30 million estate, end quote. David, he won the case on the state level and he lost on the federal level, but even though he lost on the federal level, he won something else. 
romance with Sarah Hill. Aww. They ended up getting married, and they were quite the couple. Later on, there was a hearing on Sarah's divorce, and Sarah started conflict with Stephen J. Field, who used to be on the California Supreme Court, but was now a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Here we go. Here's our intersection between the characters. Sarah was fighting with Stephen, the U.S. Supreme Court justice, and when U.S. Marshals attempted to remove her, David jumped in and started to fight back. David and Sarah, they were sent to jail, and David was now ready to get revenge on Stephen Field. Just about a year later, in 1889, David and Sarah boarded a train that Stephen happened to be on. Stephen, he was chillin', just being a U.S. Supreme Court justice, he was eating breakfast, when all of a sudden, David found him, and David started punching and beating him up. A U.S. Marshal named David Neagle, who was there to protect the Supreme Court justice, shouted to the other David, there's so many Davids, the U.S. Marshal shouted, quote, stop, stop, I'm an officer, end quote. David continued to unleash his fury on Stephen, punching him, beating him up, so Marshall shot twice into David's chest, killing him. The state of California was trying to prosecute the U.S. Marshal who killed David, but eventually the Supreme Court ruled that California lacked jurisdiction because the killing took place in the course of his duties. I can't imagine that that vote was not biased. It's like this U.S. Marshal stopped the beating and potential assassination of a U.S. Supreme Court justice? Yeah, no, there's no jurisdiction. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Our next Supreme Court scandal comes from Justice McReynolds, and it really focuses more on how he treated people and what he publicly said about different groups of people rather than a potential assassination attempt or getting kicked off the court. Believe it or not, an old white man in the early to mid-1900s was sexist and racist. Wow, what? Who, who would have thought that? When he died, no past or current Supreme Court justices went to his funeral. Here are some of the things that he said and some of the things that he did. When he was on the court, there was another justice on the court named Justice Louis Brandeis, and Justice Brandeis was Jewish. Whenever Justice Brandeis spoke, McReynolds would just simply get up and leave the room. He once said, quote, For 4,000 years, the Lord tried to make something out of Hebrews, then gave up as impossible and turned them out to prey on mankind in general, like fleas on the dog, end quote. He often called African-American people, quote, ignorant, end quote, and having, quote, but a small capacity for radical improvement, end quote. To throw in the spice of sexism, back when he was a justice, it was rare in society for a woman to be an attorney, let alone for a woman to go up and argue before the Supreme Court. But when it did happen, he would say, quote, I see the female is here again, end quote, and then would just leave the bench. Justice McReynolds, you asshole. Our next person is Justice Hugo Black, and what was his scandal again? Oh, yes, he used to be a member of the KKK, and even administered oaths to new members in the KKK. 
Hugo Black, he was appointed by FDR, so he was appointed in the 1930s or 1940s, even though he wasn't a member of the KKK when he was appointed, as if that makes it much better. It was a huge scandal at the time because we're going to have a former member of the KKK on the U.S. Supreme Court. Why would we do that? When this came out, he had to do a national radio address to explain himself, and in their interview, he said, quote, Before becoming a senator, I dropped the Klan. I have had nothing to do with it since that time. I abandoned it. I completely discontinued my association with the organization. I have never resumed it and never expect to do so, end quote. He also said that, quote, I number among my friends many members of the colored race. Certainly, they are entitled to the full measure of protection accorded by our Constitution and our laws. End quote. So basically, this guy's like, hey, oh my gosh, so funny, I was in the KKK, but uh, people of color, they deserve their rights. I love them so much. It's not even going to impact me at all. Don't worry about it. However, as late as 1965, Justice Black was still on the court, and he was complaining that, quote, Unfortunately, there are some people who think that Negroes should have special privileges under the law, end quote. And what were those special privileges he was talking about? Oh yes, voting. So in 1965, we had a U.S. Supreme Court justice who was a former member of the KKK and was openly complaining about that some people thought that people of color, black people specifically, deserve the right to vote. He was complaining about that. (sighs) Okay. Alrighty, our next person is Justice Fortas, and he did something that you really should never do in any profession. Take bribes. Justice Fortas, he was appointed to the court by Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965, and he faced many allegations of promoting LBJ's political career while being on the court, and in 1969, it came out that he had accepted a secret legal retainer from his former friend and client, Lewis Wolfson, the infamous Wall Street financer. Under this agreement, Wolfeson was going to pay Fortas $20,000 per year for the rest of his life for special help and consultation while Wolfson had a pending trial on charges of security fraud. Whatever their plan was, the plan failed and Wolfson eventually went to prison and Justice Fortas was basically screwed after this because you can't take bribes, especially as a U.S. Supreme Court justice, And even though he'd always denied taking the money, he eventually resigned under threat of impeachment on May 15th, 1969. He is the only Supreme Court justice to resign under threat of impeachment. Speaking of impeachment, Supreme Court justices can be impeached. There is a process for it but it's rare to happen, just like a presidential impeachment, and there has only ever been one Supreme Court justice impeachment. 
It goes all the way back to 1804 when the House of Representatives voted to impeach Justice Samuel Chase. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he was impeached based on politically motivated charges because of him acting in a partisan manner during several trials. And even though the House impeached him, he was acquitted by the Senate in 1805, quote, a decision that helped safeguard the independence of the judiciary, end quote. He ended up staying on the court until his death in 1811. So my understanding of impeaching a Supreme Court justice is it's essentially the same as a president, where it goes to the House, the House actually impeaches, and then the Senate can determine whether you're guilty or not. And if the Senate determines you're guilty, then you're kicked out. But if not, then you stay in office, even though you've been impeached. That's what happened with Trump. He was impeached twice, meaning the House voted to impeach him, but the Senate acquitted him of the charges. It also happened to Bill Clinton and a couple others that I'm blanking on. But you can be impeached and still be in office, just like with the presidency and just like with Supreme Court justices. Alrighty, our next one involves Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill, and the NAACP. This one, it has to do with Clarence Thomas, who is a current Supreme Court justice on the Supreme Court. He was appointed back in 1991. His appointment, there wasn't so much partisan bickering as there was an important discussion about sexual harassment. The hearings were televised, and Anita Hill, who was an attorney who had worked as an advisor to Thomas at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, testified that Thomas sexually harassed her. Anita, who was a black woman, was grilled by a panel of 14 senators, all of whom were white men, and the person chairing the committee was our current president, Joe Biden. She brought the topic of sexual assault to a national level, and she learned of the impact, both good and bad. Since Thomas is on the court, he obviously was confirmed, and he was done so with a vote of 52 to 48. After her testimony in 1991, she received bomb threats, death threats, and horrible letters in the mail. She received human poop in the mail, people called her house, threatened her, her family. She said, quote, I remember one particular episode where I was home on a Friday evening and I got a call from the dean of the law school saying that there was a bomb threat on my home, end quote. She said that what people don't understand about her story and likely our next story that we're going to talk about is that people don't understand the problems that come with it afterward. She thought that people assumed things just went back to normal for her, but she said that was further from the truth. There was no resources offered to her by the senators who were grilling her. There were no statements about the impact that could result from this. There was nothing. Despite the negative treatment that she received, the harassment that she received after her testifying, she continued to work to further discussions of sexual assault. She changed her career and focuses on teaching about sexual harassment in the workplace, employment discrimination, and gender violence. Unfortunately, our next story is somewhat similar to Anita Hill's in terms of a justice and sexual assault, and it is more recent and fresh in people's minds. It has to do with the appointment of Justice Kavanaugh. 
He was appointed by President Trump in 2018, and Christine Blasey Ford came forward and testified that she was assaulted by Kavanaugh. I'm going to read part of her testimony, so just a warning that it involves a first-hand account of sexual assault. There isn't graphic details in terms of graphic sexual assault things, but it still could be upsetting for some people, so... Just so you know, I am going to read part of her testimony. Quote, I'm here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I'm here today because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. During my freshman and sophomore years of school, when I was 14 and 15 years old, my groups of friends intersected with Brett and his friends for a short period of time. I had been friendly with a classmate of Brett's for a short time during my freshman and sophomore year, and it was through that connection that I attended a number of parties that Brett also attended. We did not know each other well, but I knew him and he knew me. In the summer of 1982, like most summers, I spent most every day at the Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase, Maryland, swimming and practicing diving. One evening that summer, after a day of diving at the club, I attended a small gathering at a house in the Bethesda area. There were four boys I specifically remember being at the house. Brett Kavanaugh, Mark Judge, a boy named PJ, and one other boy whose name I cannot recall. When I got to the top of the stairs, I was pushed from behind into a bedroom across from the bathroom. I couldn't see who pushed me. Brett and Mark came into the bedroom and locked the door behind them. There was music playing in the bedroom. It was turned up louder by either Brett or Mark once we were in the room. I was pushed onto the bed. Brett got on top of me. I believed he was going to rape me. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. This is what terrified me the most and has had the most dramatic impact on my life. Brett's assault on me drastically altered my life. For a very long time, I was too afraid and ashamed to tell anyone these details. I did not want to tell my parents that I, at age 15, was in a house without any parents present, drinking beer with boys. I convinced myself that because Brett did not rape me, I should just move on and pretend it didn't happen. I thought it was my civic duty to relay the information I had about Mr. Kavanaugh's conduct so that those considering his nomination would know about this assault. End quote. That was just a snippet of her testimony, and you can obviously find it online. She also released a powerful letter that you can read online. And so after her testimony, Kavanaugh adamantly denied that any of this happened, And after Ford's testimony, women began to come forward and to tell their stories of rape and assault with the hashtag, hashtag why I didn't report. She received praise from Chuck Grassley and President Trump, who called her, quote, a very fine woman, a credible witness, and her testimony compelling, end quote. Even though she received praise from those people, Trump later was trashing her on Twitter and she got so much trash from other people. However, a poll was conducted and 45% of people believed that Ford was telling the truth, whereas 33% of people believed Kavanaugh. This was a shift from Anita's Hill's testimony where public support was on Thomas's side. 
Like Anita Hill, Ford ended up receiving a lot of harassment and horrible comments. There were also supporters of Kavanaugh who tore her apart, saying that a woman could ruin a man's life, and that, quote, This could happen to any male who has been in a room with a woman alone because the story has not been corroborated, end quote. Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court by a vote of 50 to 48. I hate the argument that this could happen to any man because then you're assuming that every single woman who comes forward and says that she was sexually assaulted or raped is lying. And when those allegations come forward, an investigation needs to take place. But I would rather take the side of the victim at first than the potential accused. Yeah, it's just society as a whole needs to become more accepting that sexual assault and rape and sexual violence is a reality and that one in four women face it in their life. And so when people speak up about it, they should probably be believed because it's also one of the the most underreported crimes. One thing that Anita Hill said in a 2018 article, which I thought was kind of interesting, was this. She said, quote, What I really want to focus on is where is the process that we need to be in place that will fully vet judges and Supreme Court justice nominees? We have a process right now, as evidenced in 1991 and in 2018, that really is non-existent. I'm not even sure we can call it a process. Neither Christine Blasey Ford nor I knew where to go with our complaint. A process, an effective process, would have clear guidelines about where an individual should go if they have information about a nominee. That didn't exist in 1991, and it doesn't exist now, as far as I know. End quote. I think that's a good point, because when someone is appointed to the Supreme Court, they are going to be there for life. And so there should be processes in place that, if you have had an interaction with this person... Other than just, you know, oh, they said this one mean thing to me in high school. Okay, sure, maybe bring it up. But it's like, if this person has been racist to people, sexist to people, if they have stolen, committed crimes, if they've assaulted people, there needs to be a streamlined process to where those complaints can go to the committee or those people, if they want to testify, can come forward and testify. And as far as I know, just like Anita Hill said, there's no means in place for that to happen. There's obviously a process for nominating a Supreme Court justice in terms of the Senate confirming the president's uh, appointment, but in terms of people who have things to say, there there really doesn't seem to be a good system for that. Alrighty, the last Supreme Court scandal that we are going to talk about is very recent, just a couple of weeks old, one, maybe two, it has to do with the most recent Supreme Court leak. And I'm not going to talk about the impact of potentially overturning Roe versus Wade, but rather the leak itself and what the leak means. The opinion that was leaked, which was a draft majority opinion, was leaked by Politico in an article published on May 2nd, 2022. The case that is leaked is titled Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, and in the draft opinion, it states that the court will be overturning Roe versus Wade. And Roe versus Wade, just in case you're not aware, in that case, they found that the Constitution recognized a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy by abortion under the 14th Amendment as a fundamental right to privacy. 
With it being a draft opinion, it means that the decision isn't final. uh, Judges could still change their votes, but the draft was 98 pages. So to many and also to me, I can't imagine that things would change barely, if at all. The draft was determined and confirmed to be authentic, and it was confirmed by Chief Justice John Roberts, and an investigation has been called into the leak. Why an investigation has been called is because it is rare for anything to come out of the Supreme Court before the decision is officially released. And from what I could find, a decision has been leaked a total of either 11 or 12 times in all of history, either by people leaking it or a justice accidentally making a comment that kind of gave the impression of what the decision was going to be. But either way, 10, 11, or sorry, 11 or 12 times in the history of the Supreme Court, which started at the country's founding. There's also a quote from Justice Ginsburg, which I really like, and it's something along the lines of like, those who know about the Supreme Court don't speak, and those who speak don't know about the Supreme Court. So that just kind of shows how secretive the Supreme Court is as an institution. Even though this leak is a huge deal, unless the leak was obtained by hacking, theft, or another unlawful manner, it's unlikely that actually leaking it violated any federal laws, which is interesting to me that they're so secretive, even though there's really no laws making them secretive, it's just kind of like the practice of the Supreme Court. So if the leaker is found, it would be interesting to see what, if any, punishment the leaker would have. There are many theories as to who leaked it. Many people think it was a law clerk. Some people think it was a liberal law clerk wanting to have the justices see public outrage and then have one of them change their vote. There's theories that it was a conservative law clerk who wanted to solidify the conservative opinion and then to reinforce that the court wouldn't be swayed by public opinion. But either way, whether it was a law clerk, whether it was a family member who saw the opinion and leaked it. Like, it could have been so many people. It could have been a custodian who found a draft in the trash and leaked it. It could have been an IT person who had access to the system. Who knows who it could have been. But as of today, the day I'm recording it, May 11th, 2022, no information has come out about who released the draft opinion and who leaked it. And with wrapping that up, that concludes U.S. Supreme Court scandals. I am going to wrap up the episode pretty quickly. I need to get back to studying, so I'm going to skip the personal scandal for this episode. I'll read two next week to make up for it. So I just want to thank you for listening. I'll post stuff on social media on Friday, Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, Twitter uh, at Scandal101Pod, Facebook, search Scandal 101 Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com. If you want your personal scandal read on the podcast, please send it to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. And with that, that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Wish me luck on my final tomorrow, which when you're listening would be yesterday. Thanks so much for listening. This has been episode 52 of Scandal 101.